Hello, and welcome to episode two of Golden State Naturalist. As I record this, it's the middle of March, but I want to tell you about what I was doing back on New Year's Day. Because on January 1st, I dragged myself out of bed, I drank a lot of caffeine, and I drove out to the Nimbus Fish Hatchery in Folsom to meet up with Jason Ferreira, who works for Fish and Wildlife. Just to give you an idea about how easy it is to talk to Jason, we talked for probably 30 minutes before we even hit record for the podcast about both of our jobs as educators. Jason teaches elementary school in addition to his work for Fish and Wildlife, and I teach high school English. Eventually, we did get our mics clipped on and get to talking about fish. You are going to love this conversation. Jason is knowledgeable and just magnetic. He seriously can't help but draw a crowd because he's just that interesting to listen to. And we're going to get to that conversation in a moment. But first, I just wanted to say thank you so much for all of the ratings, all of the glowing reviews. It seriously makes my day to read them. It just buoys me when I am not feeling great or I'm feeling overwhelmed and it makes a really big difference for me. So thank you so much for those and for the subscriptions. And I know all of you are doing all of this because after the last episode released, we made it to number three in the charts, you guys, the nature podcast charts. So I was completely stunned. Uh, that was beyond my wildest imagination for what this first episode could be and what it could do. And I'm so thankful. If you haven't rated or reviewed the show yet, I would appreciate it so much if you did. That helps the podcast stay up in the charts so that more people can find it. There's two other things you can do that can help a ton too. So one is just hitting the little plus sign in the upper right hand corner on Apple Podcasts. It should show a check mark if you already did this. And two, sending a link to your nature loving friends, anyone who hikes or backpacks or walks or even gardens might really like it or really any Californian or anyone who really likes to learn. So just think about who you think might like it. And I would appreciate it so much if you would send a link to them. Okay, but let's get to that conversation with Jason. This one's going to be two parts. So on today's episode, it'll be our walk around the American River and all of Jason's observations and stories. And next time we'll get to the full interview where we sat down and talked about all kinds of detailed, great information about salmon. I decided to split this one up rather than cut a bunch of material out because it's all so good and I don't want you to miss out on it. My name is Michelle Fulner and you're listening to part one of Salmon with Jason Ferreira on Golden State Naturalist. So as I looked out just from our little vantage point here about 50 yards off of the river, right across we'll see some, there's a egret over there working the shoreline. When Jason and I met up on New Year's Day, it was a beautiful day. It was blue skies and sunshine. And not only that, but we had had historic levels of rainfall in December, which is hard to remember now that we've had a very dry January, February, and March so far, but the river was rushing and it was just gorgeous. And one of the things I started to notice as Jason was talking is that almost everything he pointed out had some kind of connection to the salmon in the river. 
And there's a really good reason for that. But before I get to that, let's listen to Jason talk a little bit about what those egrets are doing. And egrets are those beautiful white birds with the elegant long necks that look sort of like the letter S when they're extended. And oh, yeah, I see it down there. they are out there looking for those salmon eggs that were just laid here in November and December. And they're going to lay their eggs in very large clutches. So there'll be about five to 6,000 eggs mm-hmm. inside of each salmon nest. And those birds, they're coming right along the shoreline, and they're excellent hunters. They just stand there, and they can see them right in the water. They're going to pick those eggs off Mm -hmm. and, you know, eat their fill. So we heard a little bit about the egrets, but what else lives out by the American River? Well, it turns out a lot of things. Jason mentioned coyotes and mule deer and raccoons, and also birds like turkey vultures, but also a lot of other birds including waterfowl. There are also lizards and snakes, and all of these creatures have something in common. What is it? Well, it's the salmon. Because they're what we call the keystone species. Because without them, most of the biodiversity, the wildlife we see here, it wouldn't be here. Scientists did an experiment I read where they tested the DNA of the plants and animals around the riparian or around the river area And they found over 500 different species of plants and animals with salmon DNA. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so they're incredibly important to migrating waterfowl that we see here today, as well as the animals that live here. So I looked for this study and I couldn't find it, probably because there are many, many, many studies about salmon DNA, I found out today. Um, But I did find a very cool article by KQED, which I will link in the show notes, about some research that someone named Tom Reimkin, Remkin, we're going with Reimkin, who's a forest ecologist at the University of Victoria in British Columbia. And he talks about how in these old growth forests, these old trees, hundreds of years old, have this nutrient called N15. It's a type of nitrogen that is not very common on land, but it is very abundant in marine algae. So when that's found in forests, researchers know that it was probably carried there from the body of a salmon. So Reimkin says, you can visualize right at the top of these giant trees, a little spider, and it's got salmon in its body. So that's the concept that Jason is talking about here. These nutrients from the sea are carried in by salmon, and they end up in the ecosystem in all of these different plants and animals that are there. But how do they get there? This has to do with the life cycle of salmon. And this life cycle contrasts with the life cycle of steelhead trout. We were there on the very first day of steelhead season. So you're gonna hear Jason talk a little bit about them. And they have some similarities, like their migration from the ocean, the fact that they're anadromous, meaning that they can survive in saltwater and freshwater. But there are some really key differences too. Differences that explain why the salmon are considered a keystone species and the steelhead are not. And this is the beginning of their annual migration from out of the ocean, about 130 miles from the Golden Gate Bridge to right here. And this is their ancestral spawning ground because these fish are gonna come right back to this river year over year to dig their nest or what we call a red and lay their eggs. And unlike some other species we'll talk about salmon, these guys are multiple spawners. So they're gonna come back 
here oh. year after year for about four or five years. So they don't die on their trip. Nope. Nope. Okay, this is where it gets sad. Don't say I didn't warn you. Or salmon. We have the Chinook salmon that live here in, uh, in the American River. They're what we call a single spawner, solo spawner. Mm -hmm. So they're going to make the same 130-mile trek out of the ocean to here, lay their eggs, and ultimately die. Mm -hmm. But that annual migration of the salmon is what makes this place so special. So you heard him right. What Jason said is that the salmon swim 130 miles upstream. They walk uphill both ways in the snow, you guys. They go upstream 130 miles. They find a mate. They finally find love in their lives. And then they lay their eggs and they wither away. The journey just takes too much of a toll on them and they never return to the ocean again. So they die and their bodies go back into the ecosystem. And this is a major way that marine nutrients are brought back to land, ultimately supporting just about every species of plant and animal that lives remotely close to the river. Up on the side of the hill across the river, there's a family of deer grazing on the side of a hill, completely at peace. Eating the grass that was fertilized by the salmon. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I saw the Lion King. Even that far up the hill, it's benefits from the, the, the river and the fish that come back. What, how far from the river do salmon have an impact? Do you know about the <laughs> distance? Probably about a quarter mile. Wow. And that's pri primarily due to the scavengers, right. the raccoons and the skunks, because the salmon carcasses are gonna wash up on the shore. Right. Well. Animals don't like to share, so they're going to pull those carcasses inland a little bit. Right. And as they decay inland, they're fertilizing the soil. As uh, scat appears from mm -hmm. the animals, it's adding those nutrients right back into the soil. And birds can fly a long way and then, and then lose that along the way yeah. and be fertilizing the plants. The word I was trying to think of was defecate. I was like, I can't say poop right now. Exactly. Probably a pretty good distance. Yes, and like I said, mo a lot of these birds are migratory, so they'll take the nutrients that they get from here and they'll start heading a little further south uh -huh. uh, or back to their uh, northern ranges, however long they stay here with us, because we're right over the, we're right under the Pacific Flyway. Mm -hmm. I said mm-hmm like I knew what the Pacific Flyway was because I had heard of it before, but I just Googled it and let me tell you, it is basically a route used by a billion birds every year, billion with a B, to migrate north to south across the Americas. The National Audubon Society has a great webpage about this, and they also describe a lot of the most vulnerable birds that use the Pacific Flyway, so I'll link that in the show notes. Now that Jason and I had done a little bit of talking about salmon, and I started to gain a little bit more appreciation for their importance, I was really anxious to see these reds, these nests that they had laid. So we decided to take a walk down to the river to look for them. So if we were to go down to the river right now, it's, it's rushing, like you said, it's not very clear, it's kind of getting churned up. Do you think we could see any reds? Uh, perhaps in another section of the river, closer to the uh, dam itself, because the water is kind of goes around some rocks and it mm -hmm, slows down mm -hmm. a little bit. Uh, but yeah, we should be able to see some nests because the salmon, they're going to lay their eggs pretty close to the edge. Yeah. Pretty close to the edge. So 
If we get lucky. All if right. Lucky, let's try. Great. Let's go look for them. All right. So Jason and I went to look for some reds, but on the way down to the river, we stopped by the top of the fish ladder to see what we could see. And you'll hear that conversation right after a short break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. And now on to more salmon. All right, there we go. So we're, we're at the top of the fish ladder and we're looking down and I see a bunch of fish. Tell me what I'm looking at here. So we're looking at a really two different species of fish. The last of the Chinook salmon are in there as well as some early return steelhead trout. And how do you know which ones are which when you're looking at them? Well, the steelhead trout are actually just a, a regular rainbow trout. Uh -oh. They just have adapted over years, thousands of years, to be anadromous, going back and forth between the ocean and fresh water. So they have a lot of the same coloration as you would see in a regular rainbow trout. So if you look down the midline, the middle of the fish going down to the bottom, you'll start to see that, that coloration, the, the rainbow effect on the side uh, of the fish. So we're yeah. able to spot them. And, and can you also tell, because I'm guessing that the salmon are the real beat up looking ones. The salmon, they are a little bit beat up. This is the end of their life cycle. So they've gone up upstream over rocks and obstacles, mm. uh, fought one another. So they look pretty sad. So as Jason mentioned earlier, these particular salmon had traveled 130 miles from the Golden Gate Bridge up the Sacramento River to the American River and all the way to the Nimbus Hatchery. But some salmon actually travel a lot farther, and I tried to find a number on this. I found a website by a fishing lodge called the Noceum Fishing Lodge up in Alaska saying that some salmon travel 1,440 kilometers, that's almost 900 miles in fresh water to get to their spawning grounds. I wouldn't want to eat one of these. Yeah, I'm kind of just looking down to paint a picture. I see a lot of like white splotches where yeah. it looks like they've lost a lot of their scales and they're sort of just real beat up. Yeah, that's a, a disease they're going to get. It's oh, called okay. fresh river rot. Uh -huh. There's a bacteria that lives in fresh water that once they get a cut or there's an opening, oh. it gets in there and it causes those white spots. And it doesn't really adversely affect the fish. It just looks bad. But if they were in their prime, they'd be able to fight that off. Mm. That disease wouldn't affect them. Mm -hmm. Because when you look down at the rainbow trout, well, they're not affected by that because they're right. still in their prime of their life. They're just here to visit us, lay their eggs, and then head back out. So they're a lot healthier. 
I found an article from Oregon Public Broadcasting with a picture of a Chinook salmon with some of this white on its face. And it looks like what I was seeing in the river. So I'm guessing it's fresh river rot. So you can take a look at that. I'll put it in the show notes. The salmon, when they come back to spawn, they actually stop eating mm. once they leave out of the salt water. Mm -hmm. And they put all of their energy into going upstream and getting ready to lay their eggs. Their bodies go through a lot of physiological changes mm. to prepare for the spawning process. So like I said, they stop eating and they're living on their fat reserves mm -hmm. to make that 100 mile journey. Right. And then, like I said, fighting one another, finding a nesting spot, digging a nest, which can be upwards of six feet long. Wow. So they're doing a lot of work at the end of their lives. And compared to the length of the salmon, how long is a typical Chinook salmon? So a typical Chinook salmon is probably about two feet, two okay. and a half feet long. So three times their body length, three they're times, making a nest. Yes. Yeah, that's a great way to think about it. Three times their body length. And they're going to, the females are going to stay over that nest and guard it from predators and other salmon. And they just deteriorate. Uh, they get to this point where we call them zombie fish. They're just kind of swimming around out of instinct. That's what they're doing, trying to stay out of the main current. But they're not long. Yeah. They'll be animal food in another couple of weeks. So would it be fair to say that now they've basically shut off any energy that's going to anything besides spawning? They've just cut it off. 100% of their energy is just going to spawning reproduction. Absolutely. Oh, Absolutely. Jumping. The female salmon, she's going to grow in her abdomen those five to, five to 9,000 eggs. Oh my goodness. And the male, while they're inside where their intestines and their digestive tract would be, they grow what we call milt mm -hmm. sacs, which are sperm sacs. Mm -hmm. Jason is saying milt, M-I-L-T, not milk, like I first thought. And they fill up the, the body cavity. They used to hold their internal organs, so it's all about spawning. It's wow. all about spawning. Okay, I'm sorry, what? Did he just say that their internal organs are no longer needed? Yes, according to marinebio.net, salmon stop feeding when they enter fresh water. Their stomach is no longer needed and it begins to disintegrate internally, leaving more room for the developing eggs and sperm. They begin living off of the stored fat in their tissues that has been accumulating during their life in the ocean. So we might have painful childbirth and it's not easy raising human kids, but we don't have it the worst. So when we're at our, if you catch a salmon out in the ocean, you can't tell if it's a male or a female. Mm -hmm. But once they're in the river and they go through those physiological changes, the males will turn colors, they turn red, mm -hmm. and they get a large hook on their mouth. And they're gonna use that to fight other males as well as to help dig the reds. The females are no longer silver. They turn brown, kind of get spotty. And that's their spawning colors. And so when they're out in the ocean, they're very silver, mm -hmm. called silver bullets. Yeah, they swim quite quickly. But uh, spawning, it's all about the next generation. Yeah. It's all about the next generation. So they want to do it all at once, whereas the steelhead are like, you know, I'm going to preserve some of that energy. I'm going to come back. I'm going to try a few times. The salmon are like, I'm going big. One I, and this done. Is, this is it. One this and done. This is it. Yeah. I'm not and doing this again. This was too much work. So the migratory timing, the salmon, they're going to come up in earnest about mid-October, November. Mm -hmm. And by Christmas time, they're pretty much spawned out. Mm -hmm. 
which means they've laid all the eggs they're going to lay. Uh, the steelhead, they come up in January. This is, the, like I said, the opening day of, of steelhead fishing. They're going to eat those eggs. They're still eating. Uh-huh. You know, that's why they were able to fight off the diseases because they're eating no salmon eggs. Yeah, so it's, the steelhead are, are eating the salmon eggs, and that's, and that's why the salmon have to lay so many. They're exactly. like, look, we just got to get them all out there. Yeah. Are these salmon that we're seeing in here, do they have eggs still? Do they have those milk sacks? Are they... Have they uh, maybe expelled them and they're just swimming now? They've that... expelled them and they're going to follow upstream current. Okay. So even after they've laid their eggs, they're still biologically in tune with upstream current. So mm-hmm. they're just going to follow it. Right. So, you know, if we were to grab one of these guys out of here, you might find one that still has eggs in it mm-hmm. or still has some milk left in it. And which you, you can just squeeze them and it comes mm-hmm. right out. Mm-hmm. More than once I've picked up a salmon and had uh, <laughs> eggs rolling down the front of my oh shirt. Oh my god, you like caviar. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And a lot of people eat those eggs. Yeah. So right at this point in our conversation, a gentleman walked up to Jason and seriously, like, could not help himself. This is what I'm talking about. Jason is magnetic. So he just came up and he started asking all sorts of questions. So I had hit stop on the recorder, um, but Jason was so gracious and stood there and answered all of this guy's questions. So we decided to take that moment as an opportunity to walk down the bike path along the fish ladder and a little bit closer to the river where we resumed our conversation. There we go. All right. So we we walk down to the bottom of the fish ladder and this is kind of where it joins up with the river. We're looking at the dam. Nimbus Dam is right next to us. And uh, last time I was here, it looked taller because <laughs> there was less water. There was less water here. Absolutely. We are here at the foot of the dam or the base of the fish ladder. And this is where we have kind of tricked the fish in heading up to us because they're going to follow that upstream current. So we run the water, all, Ameri- all the river, water all comes from the American River. We're just borrowing it for a little bit. And it runs down and that upstream pressure, well, the fish are going to follow that. What Jason is talking about here is the hatchery and how the fish make their way into the hatchery. And I don't spend too much time focusing on that in this episode because I wanted to focus here on just the natural life cycle of salmon. But it is important because... The presence of the Nimbus Dam means that the salmon can't find all of their traditional nesting ground, and they have to be diverted, at least for part of their journey, up to the hatchery where they are artificially spawned. And here in California, especially Sacramento, we live and die by the seasonal, seasonal tides. Mm-hmm. So we've got a, quite a bit of rain this year, so the river is, is much higher than when you're here in, in uh, September. And the salmon need that. They need that cold, flowing water to find their way home. So I would be remiss here not to mention that warming temperatures of rivers, along with drought conditions, lowering the water levels, is making it a lot harder for the salmon to come back and spawn year after year. The Washington Post has a really detailed article about this called California's Disappearing Salmon, which I'll link in the show notes. And this article describes a lot of salmon actually dying before they ever get the chance to spawn. So this is called pre-spawn mortalities, and they've gone way up in the past few years. But when drought conditions aren't so bad and things are more favorable for the salmon, how exactly do they find their way back to their spawning grounds? 
So they're going to use a couple of different senses to find their way back to their river because all the salmon and steelhead we see, well, they were born here on this mm. river, about 95%. Every year I find one or two that fell in love with somebody and followed them <laughs> home, and this wasn't their normal river. But they're going to use their sense of smell as well as the magnetic pull of the earth mm -hmm. to navigate their way back home. Every river smells uh, unique to the fish, kind of like when you go home. You know, you can always tell you're home because it mm -hmm. smells like mom's good cooking. Mm -hmm. You know, you take a deep breath and you say, <gasps> I'm home. Uh -huh. Well, the American River is pretty much the same for these salmon and steelhead. And that's why we use the river water because they're just naturally drawn to that smell of home and that upstream water pressure. So there's basically just a water circle happening where water's getting pulled out of the river, goes to the top of the ladder, and then flows back down into the river? Absolutely, absolutely. Like I said, we just borrow the water. We actually have an intake pipe on the other side of the dam oh, in Lake okay. Natoma that the water flows through, through our system, and then right back out. It's gravity fed. We don't mm -hmm. use a lot of pumps because mm -hmm. we don't want to change the water temperature. Okay, yeah. Because salmon and steelhead, they're pretty particular in that aspect. They like the water to be about 58 to 62 degrees, mm -hmm. and then they'll say, oh, now is the time. You know, and they'll actually stop in the river if the water gets too warm. Mm -hmm. And they'll go back to where they find a cool spot, they'll sink down and wait for the river to cool down oh my gosh. to continue that migration. Will the eggs not thrive if the water's too warm? Uh, Sure. Okay. That's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. Maybe we'll look it up later and get back to your yeah, listeners. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I just know that they're very, very temperature sensitive. Mm -hmm. You know, they are cold water fish, so. They just won't do it. They just will Here. sit and wait. Okay, so I looked this up, and pbslearningmedia.org says that while salmon eggs can develop at lower temperatures, warmer water impedes growth. It causes salmon metabolism to increase, which takes energy away from growth and leads to earlier egg hatching. So the salmon seem to have almost this instinctual knowledge that laying their eggs in warmer temperature water won't have good results. So they just wait and hopefully they find a cooler place to lay their eggs. Here's a question that's probably a really stupid question. No such thing. See, this is why Jason's the best. So why? Don't they just put a fish ladder going up to the top of the dam? That's a great question. Well, as we said, that they've swam 131 miles upstream to get here. Mm -hmm. So if we put a, a ladder over the dam into Lake Natoma, well, that water's too deep uh, for them to spawn. Uh -huh. So then they would have to keep going uh -huh. to Folsom Dam, uh, climb up over Folsom Dam, through the depths that is Folsom Lake. Yeah to get to the rivers again. So they would have had naturally nesting habitat all along that, but that is interrupted. They can't nest anywhere in those deep waters. So by the time they got out the other side of it, they might be deteriorating, it might be too far, they might not get the opportunity to lay their eggs. Absolutely, so okay. because they have to expend so much energy getting there, we would lose more spawning fish than we would gain as well as a couple, three months, four months from now, well, those juveniles, well, they have to go back downstream. Down, yeah. And to go over those ladders coming down, that's a pretty rough journey. Imagine going sliding down your stairs in your house, yeah. 
<laughs> on your bottom or you get to the you know to the base of your steps you know that yeah. hurts yeah <laughs> that hurts. for sure so you just it's just not worth it and it it doesn't come out uh break -e there's not like a break even no for... there's not a real biological gain uh -huh. as far as the upstream habitat because the salmon would die mm -hmm. up there that would be beneficial right but the goal is to maintain the salmon populations and even cross our fingers increase it right so with that goal in mind the, the net return what wasn't going to be what it is mm -hmm. so i was curious about this and i looked it up and there are fish ladders that go over dams and they actually look kind of cool they look sort of like a water ride at a theme park but jason is dead on because I found a study that's from Yale Environment 360 about how these fish ladders are actually not all that effective. So this study was looking at the East Coast, but it's relevant in the West too. The article says that the results are pretty mixed. It says that fish ladders often work well for river herring on smaller Atlantic rivers. It also says that fish ladders at dams on the West Coast giant Columbia River system allow large numbers of salmon and also non-native shad to pass. But despite this apparent success, contemporary runs of salmon are likely an order of magnitude lower than historic abundances. Chum salmon runs also once numbered well more than a million. Today, they are about 3% of that. So even where it's been considered a success and it seems like it's working, it's still a tiny fraction of the amount of salmon that would have run the river before the dams went in. So that article is called Blocked Migration, Fish Ladders on U.S. Dams Are Not Effective by John Waldman. And I'll put the link to that in the show notes. Yeah, you don't want them to go up there and die one year exactly. and never come back. Never then you're, then you're going to have a big loss. <laughs> right. On your I mean, hatcheries, they are controversial. People have feel very strongly one way or another, but we live here, the salmon live here, so we found a way to coexist, mm -hmm, if you would, mm -hmm. as everything in nature has to find their balance. So by bringing salmon in, spawning them, and then returning them to the river, we are trying to make up for that loss mm -hmm, of habitat. Mm -hmm. We're trying to hold the fish population steady, but the loss or gain of salmon is affected by, is affected by so many different environmental mm -hmm. factors that are completely out of our control mm -hmm. that this is what we do this it's is the best solution we've been able to come up with doing the best we can with the situation we're in kind of a thing yeah mm -hmm. so if you're hearing this and you still want to know more about the controversy around hatcheries don't worry that's coming in the next episode so in part two jason and i go into more depth on why hatcheries are controversial you know, folks are like, well, why don't you take out the dams? I'm like, well, because I don't like wet ankles. Sacramento <laughs> is historically a floodplain. Right. Side note, I would love to do an episode on the natural history of California's Central Valley and what it would have been like here before all of the dams and levees. So who's with me? You guys want an episode about that? You know, so if we didn't have the dams to protect from flooding, if we wouldn't have drinking water, Looking for green energy, a lot of these dams produce hydroelectric power. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's a trade-off. There's that balance to be struck between what we need as humans and what wildlife need. And I find that most people want that balance. Mm -hmm. They may not know always how to reach it. 
This episode is about salmon and not about dams, but you kind of can't talk about salmon without at least mentioning dams. And dams are extremely controversial for a lot of good reasons. So I'm going to read you a quick list of pros and cons of dams from prosandcons.com. Here are the pros. Hydroelectric power, efficient storage of water, control floods, which is what Jason was referring to, tourist attraction, recreational activities, reduced pollution because of the hydroelectric power, low maintenance costs, reliable environmental protections regarding uh, risk associated with waterborne diseases in an environment, and mineral processing because some dams uh, have mine tailing impoundments. I don't know what that means. Anyway, cons. They're expensive to construct, complex repairs, they limit fish migration, they can displace people and cause deforestation, environmental effects having to do with the flow of the river, even increased earthquakes because building a dam in a large area will depress the earth's surface, which is crazy, death if the dams break and there's intense flooding because of that, destruction of wildlife habitat, and loss of minerals in the downstream area. There you have it. Pros and cons. But that's one of the great things about being out here and talking with people, they kind of get their eyes open to what's happening along the river mm -hmm. and this ancient migration that's been going on right in their backyards. Mm -hmm. And when you understand something, then you'll protect it. Right. You know, when you see a 35 pound, two and a half foot long fish right in your backyard, you have a new like, whoa. It's amazing. Yeah. And that's one of the joys of being out here for me is getting to share my experience of sitting on rocks and watching the world go by, right. learning the plants and the timing of things and getting to share that with the public. So one of the spots I want to show you is just across from the man-made uh, ladder back over to the natural side of the river. And we'll look for some salmon nests. All right. And maybe we'll even find a, a salmon carcass or two to poke at. Perfect. Let's go take a look. This next clip you're gonna hear is really just us taking a look down by the river and seeing what we see. So I hope you feel like you were on our walk with us when you hear this. Okay, so we hiked across a little rocky area. There's a great blue heron right across this little waterway from us. Great blue heron are those large sort of grayish bluish birds that you'll often see standing with their legs in the water. They also have those long feathers sticking off of the back of their heads. Oh, it's beautiful. It's, it's fishing. Is it looking for fish or is it looking for eggs? Well, great blue herons, they will eat a variety of animals. They'll eat frogs, lizards, fish, okay. fish, eggs. So he's looking, he's an opportunistic hunter. So if he sees it, he's going to eat it. But right now he is probably looking for eggs because mm -hmm. we're right down here along the edge of the river. And what I'm looking for is some clean spots. Because the salmon, they're going to come and they're going to clean off all the dirt and algae like right in front of us. Uh-huh. You can see those little rocks there, well, they're a little bit less dirty than the rest of the rocks. Uh -huh. And that's probably where either a salmon or a steelhead has laid their eggs right there. Oh, my goodness. So if we go closer, will we maybe be able to see some? Well, let's take a look. So let's we're coming up. There's a lot of kind of rocks a lot of they're sort of varying in size here some of them are like the size of a softball some are a little bigger a lot of smaller ones and we've got actually a little bit of a clear spot 
in the water, it was it was really muddy where we were looking before. So this is cool. We can see into it a little bit. Yeah, this we call this salmon gravel because salmon can actually use the river as well as their tails and they can move rocks about the size of a grapefruit. Wow. About a one to two pound rock. They'll just move it out of the way because they want that small gravel mm -hmm. to lay those eggs in because as the river speed increases, well, they have to be held in place. Yeah. There's a certain amount of eggs that are going to roll downhill or downstream, so they really pack them in there mm -hmm. to try to keep them from going downstream. Let's take a look right around this corner. We got some white willow growing, which is really common here along the river. And this is habitat for your frogs as well as for the salmon. Mm -hmm. So we're looking for a clear spot. And then what else are we looking for when we're looking for the eggs? Well, in another few weeks, we'll start to see the babies popping up oh just above gosh. the bottom. They stay pretty close down in the rock. But a good way to spot a salmon nest is to follow the birds oh. because they're looking for them too. They know where they are. They know where they are. How do they not just get completely decimated by the birds? I mean, I feel like the birds would just come and eat them all. You yeah. Know? Well, that's the law of large numbers. Uh -huh. So the salmon, they're going to lay that five to 9,000 eggs. Mm -hmm. And then we'll have 60 or 80,000 uh, salmon mm -hmm. all doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. So even with the abundance of birds we have, and the predators who are looking for them, there's still enough mm -hmm. to maintain population. So out of an average nest of 5,000, we figure we're gonna get five fish that return. Mm -hmm. So I always say it's a replacement value, mom and dad, plus a couple. Mm -hmm. So that's why they have such large clutches of eggs, mm -hmm. because there's so much predation, not just as eggs, but as they go through their whole life cycle, you know, it's just tough out there for a fish. Everybody mm -hmm. loves a good salmon. Yes. <laughs> so over here, we're not seeing any. Would we be seeing little round red eggs if they were here? We should. We should. They'll be pretty tough to spot. Because like I said, they should be packed down in the, in the rocks. But let's take a look. Let's walk around. Okay. Can we get over there? We can get over we there. We can do it. Here we walk past a little bit of a tricky spot with a lot of rocks. Oh, we were walking along, still haven't found any nests, but we found, what did we find here, Jason? So this is a, a backbone or the spine of a salmon, and then from the looks of them, it's probably from last year. Let's pick it up and see. That's oh, pretty malleable, so this might be from earlier in the season. Oh, really? Yeah, because you still have a little marrow uh -huh. and a little flexibility. But it's picked completely clean, so something oh yeah, or a lot of somethings a had a good meal here. Indeed. So you'll get everything from insects that'll prey on them, uh -huh. that'll finish them off. The birds start them and kind of cut a hole in it, and this goes from there. This is the bottom jaw. Can you tell if it's male or female from the jaw? Uh, I would need a little bit more. I'm thinking this is a male just because of the curve of the jaw where that salmon will get that bent and that hook in the, both the bottom and the top of their jaw. So I'm thinking this is probably off a male and looking at the size of the spine, you know, you might have a two foot, three foot long 
Eh, probably about two and a half foot long yeah. fish here. Pretty big guy. Pretty big, but it doesn't take nature long to reclaim it. And these bits will go back into nature and fertilize this soil into what I like to call super soil. Ah, uh, yeah. When I was a kid, my mother, my grandmother was an amazing backyard gardener. Mm. And we would go into the farmer's market and buy a whole fish. And I'd be like, I don't want to eat fish. <laughs> and she would just cut them up and put it in the garden. Oh, and she wow. would grow our vegetables right on top of that fertilized so uh, soil from the salmon or not back on the East Coast, it was probably bluefish or uh -huh. something of that nature. And they really, really make a difference. People spend thousands of dollars on fertilizers. Mm -hmm. Let's get a fish the natural way. No chemicals added, and it turns your soil into something magical. So at this point, Jason and I did quite a bit more walking. We scrambled over some rocks and went to three or four different places along the river that were likely suspects for salmon nests or reds. But everywhere we looked in the water, it was a little bit muddy from the recent rains. That's something we call turbidity or just the amount of dirt in the water mm -hmm. and it'll settle or a lot of glare because it was a beautiful sunny day and so we never were able to find those salmon eggs that day but i asked jason a bit more about what they would have looked like if we had found them how big about are the eggs if we were gonna an individual egg i always liken them to orbeez hmm. like the little kids toys those orbeez yeah that I didn't know what Jason was talking about at first because my kids have a different brand of these, but they're those little gel water bead things. You soak them in water and then they expand and they're this kind of cool sensory toy. So they're about the size of a pea, about okay. the size of a, of a, of a green pea. Um, and they're soft, they're mm -hmm. very, very soft. You can pop them in your fingers and that's one of the things we have to watch out for is because mm -hmm. they are so shallow, and so close to the edge, people oftentimes will walk on a nest mm. and not even realize yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. You know, and we do lose a certain amount of eggs to that, to just people tromping around without really understanding the ecosystem, without right. understanding the sensitive nature of it. Mm -hmm. But again, comes with time and experience and listening to this cool podcast. <laughs> I'm gonna leave that in there. Good. Well, do you wanna go along the shore a little bit and just yeah. see? We never did find those salmon reds, but we did see some other cool things along the way, including birds like the great blue heron and the egret that we saw earlier, and... There's a little golden-eyed duck doing a little bobbing for, uh, for food there. So are a lot of them looking for the eggs? Most of them. Most of them Most are. of them are looking for eggs. Some of these smaller birds are gonna eat Awesome. The bugs that are just above the water. We saw a, a black Phoebe there, like the little flies. And mm -hmm. in the springtime, they'll eat all the mosquitoes for us, which is appreciated. But I think the best part of this really was just hearing Jason's reflections on spending time in a place. You know, if you find your, your place or your sit spot, that's what mm -hmm. I call it, the pot, spot you can go to over and over and sit and be still and listen, then you'll see it. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, every now and again you have the passing plane. <laughs> <laughs> we still are in a in a metropolitan area, uh-huh. but having that sit spot and having a relationship with place, you know, I've been, like I said, I've walked this river for 10 years mm-hmm. and I've never seen the same place twice. Yeah. It's always rewarding. I always get to see something different, different wildlife, different plants, the river responding differently to different environmental mm-hmm. factors, and, but it's always worth it. It's mm-hmm. always worth the little hiking or getting your feet a little wet mm-hmm. to recharge. Yeah. You know, it just recharges your battery. It, uh, It's free yoga. Yes. It's free meditation. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, contemplate things or not. Right. Just be. Mm-hmm. Something we don't get enough of. Truly, truly. Sure. We're rushing around and we might look over at a, out of our car windows at nature going by at 50 miles an hour, but it's a different experience mm-hmm. to sit with it. I love this because it's so, so hard for me, even as someone who loves nature, to find a way to just be still and observe and allow myself to be completely present. I get so caught up in checking things off the to-do list that I forget that the reason I even have a to-do list is to have a better, more enjoyable, more meaningful life. And taking moments like the ones Jason is describing here just really puts things into perspective. It reminds me that I'm part of something so much bigger and more ancient than myself. It's great to adventure and explore and even accomplish impressive feats, but all of those things are more meaningful when balanced with stillness and observation, more profound when tinged with the kind of wonder that can only come from forgetting ourselves, even if just for a moment, in favor of simply being. I hope you enjoyed part one of my outing with Jason. Next time, you'll hear the full interview, which will cover what the salmon are doing when they're not spawning, other anadromous species, the range of salmon in California and beyond, more information about hatcheries and why they're controversial, how high salmon can jump, and when is the best time of year to see the salmon in action. Speaking of times of year, this interview was recorded over three months ago when the freshly laid eggs were sitting in the gravel at the bottom of the river. What's happening with them now? I'll let Jason tell you. And if we were to walk back down here again in March, we'd start to see the little babies coming up right above the water. So if you live anywhere close to a river with a fall salmon run, there's a good chance that you could go and see some baby fish in the river right now. And if you do go out to the river and take some pictures or do some nature journaling, I would love to see those. You can use the hashtag Golden State Naturalist on Instagram, and I will find those and repost them. And if you want to keep up with me and see pictures of my outdoor adventures and hear updates about the podcast, you can follow me on Instagram at Golden State Naturalist. And the last thing I want to say is that this is a completely independently made podcast, much of which is recorded in a makeshift blanket fort that I set up um, on the couch (laughs) and sit in and record in. So if you would like to support the show, you can support me on Patreon for as little as $4 a month. And that gives you access to all kinds of behind the scenes and episode extras, including a video this month of Jason with the fish skeleton, which is very cool. 
And that money goes directly back into the show by supporting things like gas money for me to go and get these interviews and to fund the recording equipment. So that is an incredibly helpful way to support the show. But there are also other ways to support it, such as making sure you're subscribed and telling your friends and the other things I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. I also just wanted to put a reminder in here that I'm still going to be doing every other week episodes while I get the hang of things. Also, because you're here at the end of the episode, I'm going to tell you something interesting about my week. And I'm going to do this at the end of every episode. It might be something interesting that I read. It might be something interesting that I experienced. But this week, it's that I'm reading this book for my book club called If We Were Villains. And in the book, there's this production of Julius Caesar, Shakespeare's Caesar. And I read the part today about Caesar being assassinated. And today is March 15th, which is the Ides of March. So that was just a kind of crazy and slightly creepy coincidence. Okay, thanks for sticking around. Thanks for joining me for another episode. I can't wait to see you on the next one on Golden State Naturalist. The song you just heard is called I Don't Know by Grapes, and you can find a link to that song as well as to the Creative Commons license in the show notes. Bye-bye.